You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you today. Um, it's always good to see who shows up after Easter, right? <laughs> I tell you what, for those, for those who are here, who are... Uh, Join us again. Last week was your first time. Welcome back. We are so glad that you, that you came to join us again today. So uh, prior to Easter, uh, we were, have spent the last few months studying the book of Matthew. And for the last uh, few weeks, uh, we've, been, we've been in chapters 5 through 7. So we're going to pick that up again today. So if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and open it up. And we're going to be starting in chapter 8 today. I'll tell you, today is the last, last week of the month is always our family service. And I think Kathy or somebody um, actually put together a, a, little, a, a little note sheet for kids or, or it doesn't have to, you don't have to be a kid if it helps you, okay? Um, so if you, if you have a kid, if you have them, there's a great place to, you could take notes or draw goofy pictures of me or whatever you want to use it for. Um, but here, follow along. This is, this is a resource that's available. I think they're out in the lobby if, if you'd like them. Um, so as you said, you know, the last few weeks we've been, we've been looking at, at this, this passage, and today we're going to uh, look at chapter 8. Um, in this sermon, if we saw in 5 through 7, that Jesus launched his public ministry. And this sermon was like, it just kind of flipped the script. And he, and he ministered, he showed this shock and awe to those who were there that day. And... Um, he literally astonished people with the authority with which he spoke. As we saw in verse 28 and 29 of the last chapter, it said that he didn't speak as the scribes and the leaders or with the authority of the rabbis, but he spoke boldly on the authority of God himself. So in chapter 5 through 7, he spoke as one who had a divine nature. And now we're going to see as we move into chapters 8 through 12 that he's now going to back it up with countless acts that can only be accomplished by one within a divine nature. So as we do each week, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 8. When he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing. Be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus told him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible agony. And he said to him, am I to come and heal him? Lord, the centurion replied, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this. And he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed 
and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus told the centurion, go as you have believed, let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that very moment. Jesus went into Peter's house and saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weakness and carried our diseases. Pray with me. Father, what an what a awesome display of your power and of your compassion. God, as we, as we, as we read these stories, as we, as we read of your marvelous works, would we once, be, once again be awed at the majestic power of our living God and be blown away that in the midst of great power, you also show tremendous, unfathomable compassion and love towards us. So God, today, as we, as we look at this passage, would we, would we clearly and vividly see you? Would we see you for who you are and what your desire is for us? And God, would we also see ourselves? Would we identify with the lepers, with the, with the paralyzed, with the ill, and would we know that the point of, of the healings is that we would, would identify with you as ourselves as well. So God, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your law today. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. So <clears throat> I think that the, the lion's share of the next two chapters is made up of, of seven different events that detail seven specific healings among the hundreds that are not shared in detail throughout, throughout the next four chapters and beyond. But I think in order to appreciate these stories to their fullest, it's really important that we view them within a larger context. Or else it would be, view, it, it would be tempting to view Jesus as, as kind of like this magician guy who has this unique ability to make people feel better, and he's all about just making sure that our physical lives are filled with comfort and ease. And we know that's not the case, is it? He's about a greater, he has a greater mission, a greater plan. So before we examine the specific healings, I think it's good that we remind ourselves of what Jesus' mission was while he took on flesh and while he dwelt among us. I think maybe the most concise statement of his mission is found in Luke 19.10 that states, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. A little more specific mission statement is made in Titus 2.14, where it says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. And when you read this, it it makes perfect sense when you look ahead to the end of the story. And you can read in Revelation 7, starting in verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So if Jesus' mission on earth was to seek and to save the lost and to redeem and cleanse for himself a people from every tribe and nation who would bask in the glory of his majesty for all of eternity, then I think the question we have to ask in light of this text is, how does Jesus healing people help accomplish this mission? Fair question? I think the clearest answer to the question is probably found in John 20. So we've, used, we've, we've referred to this, this, uh, this text many times over the years. In John 20, 31, it says, Jesus performed many signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Picture's starting to come into focus a little bit now, isn't it? What was Jesus' primary purpose for healing people? That by seeing him do things that only a divine being could do, that we might indeed believe that he is indeed God. And he has the ability to rescue us from the curse of sin and death and to give us eternal life in his glorious presence. And therefore, the last question we need to answer for us to be able to view this series of miracles in a proper context, would be, how did Jesus healing people actually accomplish this? And I believe the answer to that is that these stories of physical healings are really written to point us to the greater healing of our, the greater miracle of our spiritual healings by demonstrating God's power and compassion in contrast to our brokenness and sin. You see, God wants us to rightly see both ourselves and him through the stories of miraculous healings. Now, you have to understand as we look at this that, that illness and disease at this time were not like today. The ancient world was, was rampant with a multitude of diseases. And unlike today, virtually none of them had any cures. They didn't have hospitals on every corner. They didn't have emergency clinics and everywhere you look. There was no CVS or Walgreens to run to for prescription meds. There wasn't even essential oils to rub on what ailed you. You couldn't even Google your symptoms or go to WebMD. Medical science was in its infancy here. Contracting a disease in the first century typically at best meant a life of agony and pain with no hope of a cure. And at worst, it meant a slow, agonizing death. 
This was the world that Jesus was stepping into at the beginning of our text when he came down from preaching the Sermon on the Mount and stepped into the crowds that surrounded him. Verse 1, we read, when he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus didn't even have a chance to, to catch his breath after preaching when this incredible scene opened up before him. Several other translations begin verse 2 with the words, and behold, which is kind of like saying, you're not going to believe what happened next. And what happened next that took the people's breath away was a leper showed up. And you know, of all the diseases in the ancient world, leprosy was by far the most feared. Um, it's scary. If you want to go and just Google leprosy and look for images, it's, it's not pretty. Um, leprosy caused disfigurement of the skin and bones. It led to, to, to twisting of limbs, curled, gnarled fingers. It often caused blindness and the, and the collapse of the navel cavity. In addition, leprosy usually destroyed nerve endings that carry, that carry pain signals. And therefore, people, people with advanced leprosy would often injure themselves due to burns and cuts and other infections because they couldn't feel pain. In addition to the, to the physical ailments, lepers were considered to be cursed by God. So they were both physically and ceremonially unclean. They were shunned and rejected by everyone. Lepers of all people were most miserable. And the account of this leper in the book of Luke says that he was full of leprosy, which means he was likely in the last stages. So, so his appearance was likely to be hideously grotesque. And I don't believe it's a coincidence if God wanted to paint a picture of the destructiveness of sin and God's power to cleanse even the worst sinners, that his first exhibit was that of a leper. People were undoubtedly stunned that this guy was even there. But to have the nerve to approach Jesus was unthinkable. Lepers were required to avoid people and proclaim their uncleanliness, not approach people. I can just imagine this guy walking through this crowd and the part, crowd just parts like the Red Sea, leaving only Jesus and the leper. You see, this leper was desperate. He was tortured. He had no hope. Therefore, he had nothing to lose. And you see, the path to salvation is never one of a confidence and entitlement, is it? There are many recorded healings in the scripture, but the best of my knowledge, and Jeff is here, so he can, he can correct me if I'm wrong. The best of my knowledge, not a single healing included a Pharisee. 
You see, this leper, he didn't care about who was staring at him or how offended they were in his presence. He saw a glimmer of hope amidst his despair and he charged, advancing undeterred towards Jesus. And then upon coming near him, what was the first thing he did? He knelt. He knelt, indicating that he knew he was not just in the presence of a good guy or a healer. He was in the presence of God. Where the self-righteous Pharisees saw Jesus as as a blasphemer, as demon-possessed, this lowly leper saw God. And amazingly, his first words to Jesus wasn't a request, was it? It was simply an acknowledgement. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. (laughs) There is a treasure trove of great theology in this simple statement, isn't there? I mean, first, in addition to kneeling in reverence before Jesus, he called him Lord. Now, given his kneeling position before him and his belief that Jesus could make him clean... Him calling his Lord was clearly more than a sign of respect. He wasn't just saying, sir. It was an acknowledgement of his deity. And second thing we notice is he didn't question Jesus' ability to heal him, but only his will to do so. What a beautiful picture of humility. In essence, this, this leper was telling Jesus, Jesus, I have no doubt that you can heal me if you choose. But I also know that if you do, it's not about anything about me that warrants it or makes me entitled to it. I am wholly dependent on your sovereignty and your mercy. Kind of smells like the gospel, doesn't it? Amen. But you know, as rich as verse 2 is, it doesn't compare to verse 3. Look at it. Reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him, saying, I am willing. Be made clean. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. (laughs) I could so spend the rest of my time expounding on the rich treasures of this verse. What amazing theological bombshell. The first phrase, reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him. The Gospel of Mark's account of this miracle precedes this statement with, moved with compassion, he reached out his hand and touched him. Now, if the crowd was shocked at the presence of this leper, and more shocked that he would dare to advance towards Jesus, this had to really take their breath away. No one touched a leper. No one. You avoided them at all costs. You certainly didn't have compassion and reach out your hand toward them. You see, these seven words tell you really all you need to know about both the compassion as well as the divine power of Jesus. Jesus' actions were driven by compassion for the man's helpless state. 
And because of his divine power, he had no fear of touching the leper. You see, when Jesus and leprosy intersect, the leprosy doesn't infect Jesus. Jesus infects the leprosy. Amen. And what is true for Jesus and leprosy is also true for Jesus and sin. What compassion. What power. And then Jesus clearly addresses the only uncertainty the leper had by saying, I am willing. You know, there's no account in Scripture of someone coming to Jesus for healing that he wasn't willing to heal. He didn't turn anyone away. And there is no sinner who comes to Jesus on bended knee with empty hands for removal of spiritual leprosy of sin that he also doesn't say, I am willing. Followed by, be made clean. Notice here that Jesus doesn't pray for the man's healing, does he? No. Like all the other miraculous healings, what does he do? He commands it. Leprosy was powerless in the presence of Jesus, just like sin. And what happened next? Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. When Jesus heals, get this, he always does it immediately, and he always does it completely. I mean, make no mistake, this man was not, was not partially cleansed of leprosy. He wasn't mostly cleansed of leprosy. He was completely cleansed immediately. His gnarled hands suddenly straightened and moved like normal. His collapsed navel cavity was suddenly made whole. Feeling came back into his hands and his feet and his swollen and infected limbs were instantly made whole. Now imagine if the crowd around him was astounded at the words of Jesus and the sermon he just preached. Imagine how far their jaws were dropping now. What an awesome and powerful God we serve. Amen. Verse 4 is a sermon in itself. But I think for, for our purpose today, suffice it to say that like so many others who are given the same command to tell no one, we read in Mark 1.45, after Jesus told the guy, he said, hey, don't tell anyone what happened. Go to the temple. Be ceremonially clean. Do what they say. And then we, but we read the rest of the story in Mark 1, starting in verse 45, where he says, yet he went out and began to proclaim it wild, widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. When you've been touched by Jesus, not talking about it really isn't an option, is it? There's a lot more that can, be, that, that, that can be brought out in that story. But for time purposes, let's move on to the second healing. This one delivers, um, it, it differs from the leper. And that here we have someone coming to Jesus on behalf of someone else. But we still see the same pattern of, of our brokenness intersecting with God's power. And his compassion intersecting with our helplessness. Let's quickly examine the characters in this account. 
First, we have the primary character who is a centurion. Now, between accounts in Matthew and Luke and what we know from history, we know that centurions were Roman uh, military officials. They typically commanded troops of usually between 80 and 100 men. As a Roman soldier, clearly he was a Gentile. And he very possibly was a Samaritan. As it was common for the, for the Roman Empire to recruit centurions from among the places where, where, they, where they currently lived and served. So, of course, in this area, the most common place, the most common Gentiles in that area were from Samaria. And as we know, the Samaritans, um, for Jews, Samaritans were the worst kind of Gentile, weren't they? They were almost as reprehensible as a leper. But we have an interesting twist. And that we learn in the Luke account found in chapter 7, that the centurion actually didn't come to Jesus himself. Rather, he sent representatives who oddly were Jewish elders that he sent to them to speak on his behalf, and they actually pleaded on behalf of the centurion. That was odd. That didn't happen. Jews didn't speak on behalf of Gentiles, but this, these did. And this is what they said. You read this in, 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 the, in the passage in Luke. It says, on behalf of the servant, do honor his request because they said to him, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Wow. This is not your typical Roman Gentile. We see that his virtue is seen and, and also who he's pleading on behalf of. In the Matthew account, he uses the Greek word pious, which means translated as servant. But it typically refers to a child. In the Luke account, on the other hand, he uses the word doulos, which is translated as slave or bond slave. So the person with paralysis that he's coming on behalf of is likely one of his young slaves, maybe a young man which makes the centurion's quest even more remarkable because people didn't typically have compassion on their slaves. Slaves there at this time were considered as nothing more than living tools. Not much different than a farm animal. There was a Roman writer named Varro who wrote about slaves during this time saying, the only difference between a slave and a beast and a cart is that the slave talks. So what's fascinating is here is we seem to have this very powerful, very respected, this compassionate leader, yet look how this plays out. First, given the whole of the story, I think it's fair to assume that the reason the centurion did not come himself was not because he deemed himself as, as too busy or he was too important to come and talk to Jesus himself, but clearly it was out of a sense of humility and respect. First thing, he knew that Jews weren't allowed to enter the house of Gentiles. And furthermore, he didn't even feel worthy for Jesus to come to him. In fact, he was so surprised when he actually saw Jesus coming to his house that he sent another delegation out to stop him, saying, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Through the eyes of faith, 
He recognized Jesus' divine nature. He knew that Jesus didn't need to be in the room to heal somebody. Nor did he need to appeal to a higher authority. He was the highest authority. That is what he meant when he said, I am a man under authority, and yet I have the power to command things and get it done, and to command things to get done, and they get done. By faith, he acknowledged that Jesus was indeed not a man under authority. But as scripture says, he has been given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, how much more can he speak? And whatever he speaks will happen. Here again is Christ's power and Christ's compassion on display. Note here that Jesus was willing to come to his house, even though it belonged to a Gentile, even though it was clearly out of his way, and even though clearly he didn't need to be there to heal the young man. But isn't it good to know that we serve a personal God who's willing to meet us where we are, who's willing to leave heaven to come be with us, to come step into our brokenness. He will come near when others push away. And what we also see in this story is that the power, the power of Jesus is so outstanding that in this case, he didn't even need to speak or command the healing. There's no sign of that. He just willed it in his mind, and then he told the messengers, go, because the boy is well. And once again, we see that the meeting, that the healing was both immediate and complete. This kid did not need rehab at all. Yet amid the stunning display of power, Jesus also displayed his humanity and marveling at the faith of the centurion. And also in a stinging rebuke to the Jewish people around him, he proclaims that he has never seen faith like this in all of Israel. Ouch. Imagine the disciples standing around. That had to hurt a little, didn't it? Of course, Jesus was never one to avoid conflict, so he didn't stop there, did he? But there we see in verse 11 and 12, he went on to say, I tell you that many will come from east and west to share the banquet with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Big ouch. And we wonder why the Jewish religious leaders wanted to kill him. Sons of the kingdom, make it clear, is a clear reference to the Jewish people. So in short, he's saying, the Jewish people have rejected me, so Gentiles like this centurion will come from the east and the west, and they will celebrate with Abraham and Isaac. But many of the Jews who stand here today, who see themselves as entitled and worthy, will spend eternity in hell because when Gentiles saw a divine Savior as we see in chapter 12 of Matthew, the Jewish, religion, the Jewish religious leaders saw nothing but a blasphemer. They accused him of being demon-possessed. 
And the final vignette in this series happens at Peter's house, where his mother-in-law couldn't serve dinner because she had a fever. Of course, that is until Jesus touched her. And again, immediately, her fever was gone and she returned to her chores. Jesus always heals completely and he always heals immediately. And he was once again sending a strong message about the kingdom of God. I mean, don't think for a second that it's a coincidence that the first three healings after the Sermon on the Mount were to a leper, to a Gentile, and to a woman. This was three classes of people who were universally looked down upon by the Jews. They were disrespected. They were avoided. And yet, what did Jesus do? He touched them. He came to them. He visited them. He healed them. It mirrors his words in Scripture. Luke, in Luke 5, Jesus says, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in John 1, we read, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Clearly, he's making a point here that you are not made right by God. You are not justified with God because of your ancestry. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or not. It doesn't matter whether your, whether your parents or your grandparents went to church or were, or were pastors or went to seminary. It doesn't matter. The second thing it says, it doesn't matter of your own efforts. It doesn't matter how good you were. Notice the centurion wasn't banking on his goodness for Jesus' mercy. And it's not even by the efforts of others. As much as we would like, our words are powerless to save anybody up here. God is the only one. He is the one. He's the only determining factor of who is justified. And the evidence that you have been called by God is that you come acknowledging your brokenness and your utter helplessness. And you come to him humbly and reverently, knowing that he is limitless in his divine power, yet he is moved with compassion by our hopeless condition. Our text ends by saying, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled he himself took our weakness and carried our diseases. And here we see yet another attribute of Jesus' redemptive work. He heals all who will come to him in faith. There is no record in Scripture of anyone coming to Jesus for healing that he turned away, that he said no to. And just in case you need further proof, that the point of the physical healings was the point to redemptive healing of sin, that we don't have to look any farther than verse 17. Why did he heal all who were sick and came to him? 
as a picture of Isaiah 53. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. Do you see the irony of this passage considering what we just studied? Jesus just healed three people who were clearly regarded as stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. The very attributes of Scripture says that we attributed to him. At the very time that he was bearing our sickness, carrying our pains, being pierced for our rebellion, and being crushed for our iniquities. That is why the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection that we, that we so powerfully celebrated last week, it is such a big deal. We look down upon and crushed the very one who came to save us. And yet in his unfathomable love, that was precisely the plan for our redemption. What we meant for harm, he meant for good. Love so amazing, so divine, demands our life, our soul, our all. So how should we respond to what we've just heard? I'll let scripture answer for itself. Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will freely forgive. As we prepare for communion, the musicians and communitants can take their place. Let us once again remember who Jesus is, what he did, and why he did it. You see, we can't begin to appreciate the power of communion unless we see ourselves through the desperate eyes of a leper or through the lowliness and helplessness, or helplessness of a paralyzed slave. Jesus said, whoever is forgiven much, loves much. But whoever is forgiven little, loves little. So how much are you in love with Jesus today? If he is not your life, your soul, your all, then hear me, it's not because he's unworthy of it. It's only because you think far too highly of yourself and your condition. So if you are not a follower of Jesus, then we would ask that, that you allow the elements to pass by as it would be meaningless and, and, and insincere for you to participate. But our real prayer for you today is that God opens your eyes to the true ugliness of your sin 
and his ability to wash you completely clean. And that today you, you would come to him with the despair of a leper and with the reverence and respect of the centurion. And that you would humbly ask that he do for you what he did for the broken and helpless in our text today. And for millions since, including so many in this room. And then celebrate communion as a new creature. The old passed away. The all things made new. And for those who are followers of Jesus, celebrate once again what he did on your behalf. That you too once were the leprous person. You too were paralyzed in your sin until he came near to you. Love because you have been healed and given much. Pray with me. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.